This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, the shiny jacket of Archie Rin Tut. If anything, it was too sensational. And so any football match would have struggled in comparison. Harry Kane's 50th England goal rescued a point. England's second highest scorer. Is he England's second best centre forward? Jack Grealish brought England to life. Is it time to restart the clamour for him to start? And are we a little worried that Germany worked England out? Or are we a little worried that Germany are way better than they were in the Euros? Or should none of us be worried about anything? It's June, for goodness sake. Also today, we'll look at transfers from a player's perspective. We'll get Nikki to cut and paste her Bandini awards from the Serie A season. Do some transfer tittle-tattle. Answer your question and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Neda Manua, welcome. Good morning, sir. Nikki Bandini, hello. Good morning. Uh, hello, Jonathan Liu. Hello. Uh, England rock bottom of Group A3. Uh, Graham Potter was trending on Twitter last night. Um, it's ludicrous. Um, what, did you, what did you make of that football match, Nedham? Well, oh, it's England versus Germany. It's exciting. But then it's like the Nations League and it's Nations League in June. So you kind of trade off the emotions. But then from when the game started, I didn't think England played that well overall. But the fact that they got a draw in Munich, like that is a positive. And, you know, they did have a goal. But then in the same breath, there were certain things which I've seen within the game, which looked like footballers who were sort of tired and didn't necessarily want to be playing a game in Munich in the middle of June. So, yeah, it was, it was a weird one. I'm glad I watched it. But then even like the fact it was on Channel 4, with all due respect to Channel 4, like just everything just about it was like throwing me off. I, I was like, is this happening? Did it's you a think, real thing. Did you think, Nedham, and I, and I don't know how many people said this before the game, I presume everyone who was covering it, because you kind of have to saying, it doesn't matter what the tournament, it doesn't matter what the game, it's England v Germany, so it really matters. And this was yeah. the exception for the rule where actually, <laughs> well, it didn't, didn't really no, the, do you know what? I think I think in some ways it did because I could picture the way I sort of view football sometimes is you picture some of the narratives that come off the back of a defeat. So this would have been the second defeat. It would have been potentially Germany outclassing England and saying, oh, Germany are going to be the dominant side. England bottom of their nation's league group. England losing two games in a row for the first time in like four years and stuff like this. So you think of the bigger picture, but I think for the guys, like they play, you know, they they contested, they drew the game and so on. But there were times when I could see there were, they perhaps had the mentality whereby it's a Nations League game against Germany, it doesn't really matter. But then as soon as they were being outplayed for certain segments, a sort of frustration, and it sort of manifests itself in 
say people just running around and pressing people randomly to try and kick some on and stuff like that. Um, so it did matter. Football always matters. You can pretend it doesn't, but as soon as you step out on the field, nobody wants to be humiliated because essentially you play the game to just win anyway, don't you? I'm curious about this from a player perspective because speaking sort of as a, as a journalist, I feel like because we had the pandemic pause and then we mm. had the Euros and then we had a full season. I'm knackered. Like I'm, I'm sort of, <laughs> this is not the ideal time as a journalist there to be games. I'd love to be able to just say, right, this is finally the time where you can take a stop because it feels that like we've had a season and a half all rolled together without a break. As a player, is that, I mean, I would have thought you must be talking to some of your, your former colleagues yeah. and they must be just shot. Yeah, they, they are. But I think um, to, not to separate people, but some of the people who we talk about when we think of that sort of mentality, they've played 60 games, 70 mm. games in the season, but they're the exception, not the rule. Mm. So other players are tired because they have played a lot of football anyway, but it does feel like an awful lot, but in the same breath, for as tired as they are, if there was a World Cup this summer, I'd also be very excited. I got to the end of the Premier League season. I was like, oh, thankfully, Ooh, it's been a tough season for me. I can rest my vocal cords and my opinions, just have a few weeks off. But then, you know, like for them, they've been traveling around. They've spent time away from their families and the like. And traditionally, a lot of teams would dream of playing four games this summer in a, in a competitive format. So it does feel like a lot, but I think perhaps it feels like a lot because it's different now. And for those guys, like I, feel, I do feel bad for them because all they're doing is playing. I think Kevin De Bruyne said last week, he said, I don't like the Nations League and so on and so forth. But the caveat was, said, why are we playing games in this summer after the season that we've had? I don't like the Nations League as a concept, mm-hmm. but the timing of it is kind of discrediting it in this moment. But, you know, if you're going to play a World Cup in November, December time, then these are the consequences, I guess. I, I like the idea of you resting your opinions for June and July. <laughs> oh, gosh, <laughs> general questions yeah. and just being like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Don't yeah, mind. That's so the sounds right like, way to be. Sounds, sounds like Barry, sort of his general, <laughs> has been resting his opinions for, for years. Uh, Johnny, have you, have you got any opinion? Are you resting your opinions or can I trouble you for them on, on the game yesterday? <laughs> no, I, I, have a, I have a, you know, I have some opinions. I have maybe, I have, you know, one or two opinions. I, th- I thought, you know, Germany were a lot, a lot better than certainly they were in the Euros. You can definitely see the anti-flick effect already. The way they they press, they were well drilled. Um, I still don't think they're great at defending. Uh, there was you know a lot of you know stuff last night, slightly overblown about about them being you know a top elite team again. And I think you know they are going forward. They always have been going forward. But at, at the back, I think there are still a couple of issues there. Um, as for England, I mean, I think they didn't start very well. They didn't pass the ball very well at all. Um, and I think you know there was. There was a lot there. If you if you're kind of if you're a Southgate stan, you know there was a, there was a lot there to go on. If you're a Southgate hater, there was there was also a lot there to go on. Certainly the way they they came back in the in the last twenty minutes and and went for it, you know, the way that we've been begging Southgate teams to do, and and that's ultimately when they when they looked at their best. Um, I, I you know it was a slightly dodgy penalty as well. Um, I think Kane's Kane's left foot should have been booked for what it did to his his right foot. Um, <laughs> so slightly slightly dodgy penalty. Not a great performance. Um, but they managed to burgle a, a point uh, against a very a very good side, and, and that's kind of what um, that's kind of what tournament football is all about. Harry Kane's 50th goal. Bardi tweeted, you know, Harry Kane is great and I don't doubt they happened. There is filmed evidence and I was there for almost all of them, but I still can't remember any of his 50 England goals <laughs> apart from the one off his heel against Panama. Nedham, can you remember any of, can you remember any of Harry Kane's 50 um, goals? I remember the ones from the Euros last summer when yeah. I, I remember I was, I was in the USA at the time, as bizarre as that may be, but covering the Euros uh, for ESPN. 
And I think it's a, very, I think it's perfectly natural to yeah, not be in the country the, 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 that, of that, the football you're covering. I just yeah, like so to it's point like, out. exactly. It's like, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to be working for the uh, during the Euros, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to leave from London just a yeah. few days before it begins to go somewhere else. So yeah, that makes sense. But within within that, with the coverage and stuff, there's a bit there's a bit of a significant like anti England sentiment at times. We were recording and there was like a side set and I was on the side set and then we went on to the main set and I think it was Taylor Twelman was delivering his opinion about what England should do in the third game or something. And he said, oh, you should, you should 100% drop Harry Kane. And I was on the side set like, ah, please put the camera on me. Please, 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 please. Like, can I, can I have an opinion? But I couldn't because it's TV. It just rolls on to the next thing. But I thought, okay, that's interesting because they say they're perceiving to be failing. And to a certain extent, he wasn't playing as well as he could have been. But then lo and behold, a few games later, he started scoring some goals and people are like, ah, oh, that's Harry Kane. England now have a chance. So I remember those ones in particular. You know, that's that recency bias because it was very emotional as well. But 50 goals, it, it does feel like an awful lot. But I suppose that's the thing with Kane. Like, he does score a lot of goals, but you're not necessarily going to remember every single one of them. It doesn't feel like each one's from 40 yards out into the top corner, screamers and all that stuff. And yeah. And can I just make a point, by the way? I don't know what other guys think about this, but I think he's a very, very good player. But like, I'm not one of those people that falls in love with him dropping deeper and deeper and deeper to get the ball. Because there was a time, I think, just at the end of the first half, he was getting the ball from the centre-backs five yards in front of him. And I thought, this doesn't doesn't sit right with me. I know he wants touches, but maybe just be more patient. Yeah, what, I what I always get wrong about Kane is that I always think he's trying the glory pass. And yeah. actually, sometimes he just play easy. But he did get like the most amount of assists last season. So he should probably carry on well, doing well, that. Well, well, well. Okay, so this is, I thought my opinions were laid to rest, but here we're back again. <laughs> right. Um, do, you, do Spurs fans prefer it when Son is their top scorer over Harry Kane? The, the caveat is that, is that, you know, Kane is obviously is an unbelievable passer as well as a great goal scorer. He, you know, he's, when, when, he, when he spins back into the, you know, not as deep as, you know, picking the ball up off the centre-backs, but when he spins back into that number 10 role or, or he, he drops deep to get the ball from the keeper, uh, you know, from, from a kind of a, a medium-range goal kick, he is so good at playing those passes. But the thing is, he needs to be in absolutely top physical condition to play that role and then get in the box because we see when when Kane is is tired when he's not 100% on his game he, he comes back he, he drops in he plays those passes and there's no one in the box because Kane doesn't have the legs he doesn't have the engine to then get into scoring positions so Kane can play those roles he's good enough he's technically you know a brilliant player but he does need to be physically there to also mm. to also be the, you know the goal scorer that they need is he is he the second best England centre forward ever Nicky is this how we judge things just purely on the numbers I'm not a big fan of making everything the best or not the best. That's not really how I like to look at football. But I mean, he's he's pretty. Are, are we are we about to do your awards later? Like your, the way you literally give out. <laughs> right, that's true. Um, <laughs> um, tend to be less less serious. But no, I mean, look, he's he's brilliant. And, and the reason I don't like doing best rankings is a few reasons. But one of them, especially when we're talking about all time, I haven't lived for all time. We were talking before we started about the first World Cups you remember. And I do feel quite old in this group because only Max has seen more World Cups than me. But I don't... Thanks. I, I can't... Yes, okay, Max. I, I, I don't... I can't talk about footballers from the 60s with any sort of realistic uh, detail, can I? I? I saw them in highlight reels. I haven't seen them play. And and I sort of find those conversations <laughs> a bit... Yeah, the only way to do that pod is with that guy who's in the room when Indiana Jones tries to get the Holy Grail because he has been alive forever 
and he can say he's probably watched every single game. So that's the only person can do a pod with that old man who says you've chosen wisely or not. We'll try and line it up for July. Yes, Nedham. I was going to say the the thing that gets me though, like I I think what you're saying there, Nikki's spot on. You know, we've not seen all the football, but there are people who've seen the older style footballers and the modern ones. Mm that will refuse to say the modern ones are as good as the older ones. Mm. You know what I mean? That's the thing. They've been involved with the evolution of football itself, but they still have this sort of sense of nostalgia for what it was back in the day. And with all due respect, like a lot of that football from back in the day is available on TV and I do watch it. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, it's not quite how I remember the stories being told, but um, yeah, I'd say I respect the way you do that completely. And it's fair because we always want to find the best this is the guy, that's the guy, this is the person, that's the best, but it's never, you can't ever really quantify it as such, can you? And actually I've, I've had that, I'm sure I've said it on the pod before, but I had that feeling before the final of Euro 2020 of do I actually want England to win? Because because the boys of 66 are so deified and I've never seen Alan Ball have a mm. shit game, right? I've seen Luke Shaw play bad, <laughs> but I've never seen Ray Wilson or George Cohen be bad because I've only ever seen them play mm-hmm. in that football match, right? So so I don't, like, I, I've seen Mason Mount, like yes, they sort of run around a bit and, and not do a whole lot. And I'm sure Bobby Charlton did that sometimes, but mm. but I don't I don't know it. Back to this game. Mark says, does it does it worry the panel that the Germans completely sussed us out by closing down Pickford, pressing our defence, forcing us into mistakes and, and loss of possession? The USA and Wales must be salivating after watching that last N- night. No, 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 no. And this is why, like, Wales are better when they're the underdog. And them being the underdog isn't going to be them pressing England all the way back to Jordan Pickford for 90 minutes. And I think the USA as well, within that game, that's probably how they'll play in a style more similar to Wales than Germany. So yeah, England are coming up against a side, one of the few sides in Europe who will say, we'll just come and get you, especially on their turf. And we'll play it how we want to play it as opposed to how you want to play it. So I don't, I think Germany did suss them out and tactically, but that's the whole point of having a good manager and having good players, you know, trying to figure out what someone's trying to do tactically and counter it. But the fact is, I think for England, next time they play Germany, I imagine it won't look the same as it did yesterday because they've got, the film evidence to say, well, this is what they're going to do. And this is how we're going to try and break it. I think if Pickford was slightly better with some of his distribution, the same way Neuer was earlier in the game, then I think he'll get out a bit more. And for some of those players as well, there's this concept of like personality within football. And it's not like saying hello and being a nice guy. It's about receiving the ball under pressure and moving all the time to try and help people. And I think at times the Germans were very, very good at that in the midfield area. Whereas for England, like, they were more, I thought they were better as ball winners yesterday as opposed to ball players. And that's not a slur against them because I think they can do it. But that game, they didn't feel it warranted it, so they didn't do it as much as, say, they would have liked to. So there's nothing There's nothing to worry about. It is the middle of June and it's like a game that, you know, matters, but it doesn't really matter. And come tournament time, you know, if England walk away with a point from that sort of game, like, are we saying it's a crisis because Germany figured them out in terms of pressing? Probably, probably not. I know we can read too much into individual moments, Johnny, but I thought that pass, it was from Kimmich, wasn't it, to Hoffman for for the Germany goal? And sort of trying to think of, is do England have a centre midfielder who would play that kind of pass or play it regularly? I don't know if we do. No, and that's been, I guess, the issue with England midfields probably since, you know, the Lampard-Gerrard goals era. Um, and, and I think that's that's a very deliberate choice by Southgate on, on how he's wanted to build that midfield. It is ball-winning midfield. It's a kind of a screening, uh, harrying, scurrying, 
divert the ball elsewhere sort of midfield uh, rather than, than one that, that genuinely likes to, you know, get forward and, and you know, run through the... When, when was the last time we saw an, an England central midfielder literally, you know, running through the centre, you know, beating a man? It's not something they do. And, and that's something that Germany do very well. I mean, Kimmich uh, was great. Musiala, I mean, who... who uh, you know, I've seen him playing a little bit for Bayern. This is the first time I've seen him play for Germany. I like absolutely sensational, uh, playing a little bit further forward, and and that that depth I think is where Germany really really have the edge. You know, they were able to bring Sane off the bench, Gnabry, Werner. Uh, you know, they have they have Florian Wirtz, who, who is this incredible. He didn't even make the squad at um, at Leverkusen. So they they have the technical passers who can who can play those sorts of of, of balls. England don't really, unless unless you think you know, unless you, you're thinking about players like Foden. Or um, James Ward-Prowse can probably play that ball. But are they going to be getting in those areas? Tactically, are England set up to get midfielders in those areas to play those passes? Probably not. And that's a, that's a clear choice they've made. And, and Nicky, I think Johnny touched on it earlier, but you know, Southgate gets a lot of criticism for in-game management. So I suppose we should credit him for bringing on some players who made England better. I mean, Grealish specifically, I thought Bowen did as well, actually. Yeah, so I um, was... I had the Italy game on last night, so more of my focus was on that. But I certainly could see that when Grudish came on, he had a big, big impact. And I think that's sort of almost sort of beyond just talking about Southgate. When you look um, with a slightly more distance perspective at this England team, um, I think you see that one of England's sort of great strengths right now compared to in some previous tournaments they'd been going into is the depth, the depth of being able to have a player like Jack Grealish on the bench. Italy couldn't have had a Jack Grealish on the bench. He would have to be in there. Even with Italy having some quality in that part of the pitch, he'd be in the starting 11. And I think that is something that perhaps is underappreciated about this England moment is I actually think that all through the team, there's a lot of depth. I mean, some of it, um, still a little bit frustrated by, I know it's been a bit of an injury conversation, but I'm maddened that um, Southgate sells and put Tamori into this team. Um, but I think that is a reflection again of, of the quality that England have, not just in the starting 11, but the options that Southgate's going to have going into the World Cup. Jamie says, is there a more hypocritical sight in football than Jordan Pickford gesturing at his defenders to calm down? I do. <laughs> I love it when he, he puts both fingers, he puts both fingers on his temples, doesn't he? And then yells calm down and, and and you're so right it's like after just anything that sort of happens vaguely near the England goal um, I presume Nedham you've had keepers that yelled at you and you're like oh, mate come on That's yeah it. yeah, all, all the time like let's, let's call it what it is like goalkeepers are just a different species altogether like to try and figure them out it's, it's, it's hard work like is that true because it's such a cliche that I sort of think they're probably just normal people who are just no, have a different skill normal. set no 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 relax they're not normal like if, you, if you're choosing to go in between the posts and just dive around at things and try and punch things in the air and all that stuff and stand by yourself for pretty much 90 minutes like yeah. it, would you class that as something that's really desirable and well, I, well I would class it as they you know it's just a different I'm not saying they're there because they couldn't play football they're just very good at something that is essentially completely different yeah, but then say from a training week standpoint, they didn't just spend all their time just around other goalkeepers having footballs kicked at them yeah, like ninety minutes true. a day. You know, there's so what, even if you were normal before, like when you first sort of, uh, you'll be corrupted. You'll yeah, be corrupted right. as, a young, as if you come into the game as a young young goalkeeper and you're normal. Before you know it, you'll be around a lot of weirdos for a lot of years, and very quickly, you know, you become one of them. And then yeah. lo and behold, this young pup with all the enthusiasm in the world. Is now this really dour and bizarre goalkeeper who's now passing on the same lessons to the next person coming through. 
I always remember Gigi Buffon saying that the only reason he became a goalkeeper was because he wanted his own shirt. He didn't want to have to wear the same as everyone else. That's a a lovely story, isn't it? I mean, Neuer was was really brilliant yesterday, wasn't he, John? Yeah. Yeah, Interestingly, I have have to build ratings for like that they do them on on a five like a five point scale. Neuer gets a one, which is the highest mark you can get. And Pickford gets a five, which is which is the lowest you can get. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, again, you know, that that was the we talked about Neuer looking kind of bored at, at various points of the game. But when he when he he was required, uh, he really stood up. And Pickford, I thought, you know, by contrast, probably should have saved that shot from Hoffman. It, it kind of went straight at his head, and he sort of dived dived away from it. So, I mean, again, that, that that's another big area that that England have. You know, we talk about the strength and depth that England have, and they have a lot in wide areas. Uh, they have a lot at, at right back, but actually, they don't have a, a huge number of world class centre halves. They don't have a, a huge number of world class centre midfielders, and, and they really don't have a lot of options. Put Tamori in that team and tell me you don't have a good I know, half. right? So I, I, I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally with you on Tamori, but I think Southgate has got this kind of these are the guys that got us to the semi-final in Russia. It's like, you know, it's like his gap year buddies and he can't quite shake off. Like, it's like Pickford and Maguire, Stonesy, Hazard, Azar, um, you know, Walker and, and he can't, and, and, and Raza. And, and See, you know, I, he can't. I feel, I feel like I've been, like my mind about Harry Maguire has been, well, I don't know. I look at him now and think, I really don't think you're that great. And, and I just don't know if that's because he isn't or because I've just consumed so much content telling yeah. me he isn't that actually he's probably way better than I think But so he is he. I think so is he. I think what the problem with Maguire now is he's trying to be like he's he's trying to be the main guy. He's trying to he's got this real kind of hero complex. He's he's on this permanent redemptive arc where he's constantly trying to to prove something to people. And that's I think that's not that's not really the temperament you want in a in a, in a central defender. He's trying to do he's trying to do heroic things and sometimes you want your you know you want your center half to to not be doing heroic things. It's kind of got into his head a little bit. Yeah, I think, uh, Max, I think you have been drinking the Kool-Aid. And I think for other people, it's being force-fed, literally being pinned down and poured down their throats as well. And I think with with Harry, when he was first coming through for England and the like, he was a good defender, but they thought he was good on the ball. He'd come out with the ball, start attacks and all that stuff. So when things start to go wrong and he's not playing as well, like his idea of how to get it right again would be to go back to what you were doing before to get you the same level of success but at this time people know what you're going to do and I think overall for me he's obviously very good and you know I'm a retired player who never played for England so I'm not going to be saying too much when given the fact he's played my position at a higher level but playing on that left-hand side those avenues in terms of opportunity and making the right decision they close off a lot quicker when you're not left-footed and you won't go down that side I think some of that plays into some of his weaknesses because then he'll take too many touches and the like. And defensively, you know, he's still good and, and all that stuff, but that doesn't make a highlight reel. You know, he, as Jonathan uh, was saying there, there's a thing where you want to play yourself out of a situation, but football's changed a lot now to the point where some of the best centre-backs and stuff that we see, there's nothing on a highlight reel for them except for them just defending really well all the time and not making mistakes. That's how boring it is. Sometimes the difference between a really good defender and a good defender is that one of them just doesn't make mistakes. That's literally the difference, you know what I mean? I think that's the other side of why I get frustrated by the sort of constant, like, is so-and-so the best conversations is because I think, like, there's something about social media and Twitter that's mm. made us now only interested in what is the number one, what's the best, and yeah. anything else has to be shit. Like, that's it. Like, it's either you're brilliant or you're not. 
Yep. And that that just isn't real. Like, and that I think is is probably something that's been um Maguire is a good example of someone who clearly is a very good defender, but because he isn't as good as people want him to be, he's the opposite. He's rubbish. I know some people were listening who played in this game. I played in a Man City staff versus uh media game. And, you know, being a dual representative, I could, I'd ended up playing for the staff. The game started off okay. But then the standard really dropped off heavily in the second half, like heavily to the point where I was playing in this game, which was probably the worst standard I've played in since I was a child. Yeah. But I looked around and I thought, I don't need to put myself too much into this and be organizing and say, you need to go up here, you need to do this, you need to do that, because it's not my game, it's their game. But I thought, well, lots of these people talk about who the best and worst players are within football, yet still there are lots of tiny details happening, like on a Saturday, which aren't happening on this field here. but you don't, you, if you don't know it here, then surely you don't know it there. So what really makes people good? I think a lot of people don't actually see unless you're playing in the game or you understand the game. And so I can, you, can, quick- you, can you tell us what makes people good then? I mean, okay. It's, it's, it's little tiny details. Like this is people who play Sunday league and like, I'm sure you just like pulling your hair out of me and all this. But when you, when your team's attacking, like at the back, you don't need four people to just come and stand on the halfway line with one strike. I'm, I'm thinking, right, you guys need to go higher so that you can stop this attack and we can organize this and work on that and move the ball quickly. Like attention to detail for passing. Like someone would be five, six yards away and they'd fire a ball into someone's throat. I'm like, well, what do you want him to do with that? There were, basically, it was all the things where as a professional, if you did it in a training session, the training session would be stopped and you'd be asked to leave. You would literally <laughs> be asked to leave. Yet still, that was like the standard for the game itself. And I was like, well, this is where I am. But I guess people don't understand the importance of these little details. And as a consequence, like, how can we really have debates about who's the best and who's not? Because you watch a lot of football, but you don't necessarily see what's going on. I mean, I think, I think most people can recognise, you know, kicking a ball to someone that's hard to control. But I actually think positioning is a really interesting part mm. of football that no one really... It, it's hard to explain... It yeah. isn't that, in, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's not like, boring, yeah. it's not thrilling. No. And you know, when you talk about, I don't know, sort of like Roy Hodgson sort of making people do shape every single day, right? And and it's worked to a level, right? It, it matters that you are standing in the right place on the pitch at all times. And I mm. suspect a lot of people watching the game aren't, you know, you see someone miss a tackle or something or, yeah. or, or have to make a tackle or make a brilliant tackle, but they've only had to make that brilliant tackle because they weren't standing in the right yeah, place exactly, in the yeah. first place. Exactly. Like, and this is an attack against them, by the way, because they did enjoy playing in that game. But it was just it was just funny to see it. Like for years, these are the people who've spoken about the game, which I've played in. And now I'm watching them fall over when like somebody slightly changes direction. So I what thought, you're oh, saying is, is you, you can't talk about the game if you haven't played the game. That's what Very. you said. That's not what I said. <laughs> but just know what some people talk about isn't necessarily representative of what the truth is within the game. But you talked about Gigi Buffon wanting his own shirt. Um, Archie Rintut was on Channel 4 yesterday. We got so many questions about this. Um, Kevin, text Archie ASAP. Let him know he's on TV with that jacket. Um, uh, Lee, just how much time are we going to spend talking about Archie and his Technicolor dream coat? Like a wannabe fresh prince with inside-out school blazer. Bold, he says. Liam, I'm hoping Max and Barry dedicate at least 50% of the next pod to analysing Archie's jacket. Robbie, why did you all fail to mention that Archie is a Eurotrance DJ? Stackhouse, Archie's really testing the high dynamic range of my TV with that jacket. Um, you won't have seen it, Johnny. You're watching Italian, uh, you're watching German Oh, oh no, I saw, I saw so many, I saw so many uh, pictures of it. It's, I mean, it's quite fitting that it was on Channel 4, really. 
he's, he's turned up 40, 40 years late for a recording of the word. Um, <laughs> it was sensational. Yeah, we, no, we got um, we got on ZDF. We got uh, Christoph Kramer, who, uh, who I, I, I can't remember. I, I have the photo somewhere. He was wearing a very natty denim jacket. Uh, it's, it's it's the era clearly of um, of natty dress summarizers. Um, Kramer doing doing the, the the analysis for ZDF. Unfortunately, he couldn't remember more than the first fifteen minutes, uh, which kind of hampered his. Um, it's a joke about the World Cup final. It's not a great joke. Um, <laughs> no, no, I get it. I get it. Um, well, look, Archie's on tomorrow, so we'll press him. But look, good for him. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, the grim stuff. Uh, seven England fans were arrested in Munich. Uh, three for making a Nazi salute. Um, other arrests included two for inciting the police, one for using a flare indoors, and another for urinating in public. I presume using a flare indoors is not colloquialism for what that guy did with a flare on Wembley before the Euro <laughs> 2020 final, is it? I mean, that's one way of putting it, I guess. Anyway, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, um, uh, we'll do the rest of the Nations League and the Bandini Awards. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly, just two weeks away from uh, our first live show. Actually, two weeks. It's in like four days, isn't it? Um, doing some special filming uh, this morning <laughs> in Barry's local. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> this is from Pavel says, where's Barry? Is he on holiday? Is he going to recover by the 13th of June? I've got a ticket for the Leeds, Leeds show. Uh, yeah, we're keeping him fresh for Leeds on Monday with Wilson and Bruin. Uh, Birmingham on Wednesday, the 15th with Jordan and John Bruin. Uh, Johnny Lou, you're hopefully coming to Manchester on the 19th if we can fly you there. That's what's hopefully, happening. Hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, good stuff. Uh, Johnny Lou in with Philippe on, in Manchester. Mark, uh, Jonathan Wilson, Mark Langdon in Dublin on the 4th and 5th of July. Uh, Nikki, you're coming to uh, the Hackney Empire with uh, Troy and Jonathan Wilson on Friday the 8th. Ellis James, Barney, Ronay, Sid Lowe on the 9th of July. Philippe Oclair and Jonathan Wilson in Glasgow on the 13th of July. Uh, a big announcement. There will be Football Weekly merchandise um, available. Um, very David Squires inspired. So uh, thank you, David, for all your work on that. A scarf, a T-shirt, mugs, maybe even tea towels. It's getting very exciting. Um, uh, Nicky, you watched uh, Italy beat Hungary. Barella's goal was lovely, wasn't it? 
It was. It was a really, really nice goal. And um, it was an encouraging performance as far as you can take it from Italy. Um, I, I was sort of joking on, on it on Twitter last night. Isn't the real measure of the team, the league and not this World Cup you guys yeah, are all yeah, about? Um, no, I mean, like it was... It, it's, a, it's an odd moment for Italy. It's an odd moment for all of international footballs we're talking about because everyone is kind of at the end of a season and, and, and messing around a bit. But Italy sort of got thumped in the finalissima by Argentina and have come back from that with a couple of quite encouraging um, nations league performances based on throwing in a bunch more of the younger players, which is a good sign. There's been some sort of interesting emergences, I guess. Wilfred Noto is the one who's probably getting the, the most discussion, who's this sort of 18-year-old who went to uh, play at Zurich uh, from Inter's youth team when he was 15 years old, I think, and he was um, a, a star of the Under-17 World Cup back then, and people are excited to see him emerging and 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 having some impact. Lorenzo Pellegrini scored again in this game and has played really well in both Nations League games, but... Yeah, you know, Italy are out of the World Cup and and this is sort of not much of a consolation prize, but it was a good performance as far as it goes. It's probably hard to under, understate missing two World Cups in a row, isn't it? I mean, I'm just trying to think how that would play out here. You know, there'd just be, I mean, there's moaning anyway, but like, but they just, it would just be so constant. I just wonder what that noise is like from Italy. I think it's it's something worse than that at this point, Max, which is, it's almost apathetic. Um, there's just sort of such a sort of, like oh this has happened again like the first time it happened when Italy missed the last World Cup it was an apocalypse that was literally the word that was on the front page of more than one newspaper and this time it was like oh god not again and it's funny because I already sort of referenced it right before we started this podcast everyone was talking about the first football they remembered and the first of the big tournaments they remembered and for me I'm sure it's true for for some of you guys like those are like almost how I remember phases of my childhood is like I remember like because the family would all be watching the World Cup together and it was always a big deal in the Italian family like every World Cup was a big deal and I just think the kids are going to grow up without two sort of waves of that is is the bit that I still can't get over like you're going to get like that whole experience is not going to be there in a country that's that's mad for football and what's maddening is watching this team that beat Hungary last night you think they were easily good enough to qualify. They were easily good enough to qualify. And this is, you know, not even the the the, the players who were sort of relied on through qualifying or at the Euros. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe a bit like you were talking about with Southgate getting too attached to certain players. Perhaps Mancini got guilty in that qualifying campaign of, of sticking too tightly to the players who won the Euros and not saying some of these guys are out of form. Some of them are tired. Some of them need shaking up because this group that was out there, um, over the last sort of um, how many days it's been between the two games, you see players like Pellegrini who's coming off winning the Conference League with um, with Roma and he's got that, that hunger and that sort of energy about him. And I think a tiny sprinkling of that and, and Italy wouldn't be having this conversation about the World Cup at all. Um, let's do your bandinis then. So, so this, you're not just doing most improved player, you know, goal of the season. It's not that kind of... Uh, awards ceremony is it no i mean I, the idea is completely stolen from sid sid Lowe does the sids every uh, year for, for la liga and has been doing them for the guardian since before i started writing my italian football column for the guardian and so someone asked me after my first season writing the italian football column are you going to do it at the sids and i was like all right then i will um and yeah we, we, we have some we have some fun max because just going through everything and saying who was the most improved, best, best, whatever is is boring. We, there's still the best goals in there and the best player, but we also have an award for I don't know Napoli putting out 15 replica shirts this season. Yeah, Neil asked about that. What, <laughs> what 
what, what were they doing? Cynically milking fans of Sony, I suppose, Max. I mean, three of them just had Diego Maradona's face on. If you wanted your Diego Maradona commemorative shirt, which feels to me slightly... I mean, it was the first one. You're like, oh, it's quite a nice shirt. It's nice to honour him. But it, it gets almost a bit mawkish feeling to me when you've got three different colour options of, of, of the player who's passed away available to you. There was a Halloween special. There was there was three different European shirts. They just honestly sort of, it feels like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, seeing what sells. But I'd love to have a sort of breakdown of of each shirt and, and how many some of them sold because they can't you can't sell that many of 15 different shirts you picked a team of the season uh, Rafael Leal sort of sticks out as someone I from watching the Champions League stuff watching and thinking this guy's a stunning player there are rumours of him moving on as well and possibly to the Premier League yeah it's, it sort of feels a bit like um, I don't know it feels like a dynamic at the moment for Serie A at the end of every season you get a, a lot of who's going where stories I know Bastani who just missed out on that team but there's been linked heavily to Tottenham which as a sort of um, young Italian who's who's really taken a big step forward into this season feels almost sad. You're like, hang on, you've only just made this big step. You know, let's see you do it um, at Inter for another season. But Rafael Leao certainly is going to have a lot of attention on him because he was brilliant for Milan this season. He was, I think you can look at the numbers and see 11 goals and eight assists and you think that's good, but it's not like, again, we're talking about bests all the time, aren't we? It's not Messi good. It's not Ronaldo good. But his, his sort of pace, his unpredictability, his directness I think all of those things actually even English fans saw a bit in the first game against Liverpool in the Champions League when having sort of got battered in that opening part of the game Milan came and started stretching the pitch and and showing what they could do going forwards and I think a lot of that um it's it's a group effort but I think Leao's acceleration and his ability just to sort of put the terror into people when he starts running is is a really sort of important weapon and I think it's something that actually is quite a rare trait, not just at, at Milan, but all across Europe, to have those sorts of um, specific skills. Uh, while we're on these sort of, room, you know, Serie A rumours of the Premier League, Chelsea and Spurs also looking at Milan Skriniar. Was that a good idea? <laughs> yeah, look, he's a he's a very good centre-back. It's kind of interesting that um, Spurs would want him because Antonio Conte, for a long time at Inter, kind of didn't make enough of Skriniar. In fact, he was had this sort of weird dynamic between the two of them where he seemed not that interested in Skriniar, didn't even put him in his teams. And then at the end, came back in, which is, there's something that, there's something to that with Conte. Like sometimes he seems to discard players. It happened with, with Ivan Perisic as well. Like Perisic was sort of cast aside, sent off um, to play in Munich and then came back and was told, no, you're going to play at wing back. And suddenly sort of, reinvented himself as a brilliant wing back instead of a winger and I think that Conte I don't know if it's deliberate but sometimes it's like he sort of trashes players to then build them back up and yeah Skriniar wasn't part of his plans for a while but I think he's a, a very very good centre back and and um, Conte would certainly know what to do with him now. I want to talk about Immobile like does I mean basically I don't think it's like his, his third or fourth golden boot or something for Lazio and I think like we've kind of got um, desensitised to, to Immobile just like oh he's scored another 25-30 goals D- does he like does he need a little bit more respect do you think because other other strikers seem to get so much more buzz than him like because you know th- th- this guy this guy scores loads of goals and, and you know we just kind of take it for granted a little bit yeah I think the problem for Chilo Immobile is it's just the international form. He does, he scores and scores and scores in Serie A and he's done it now, as you say, so many times. 27 goals is an outlandish number. I don't care what league you're playing in. And he's not even playing in 
sort of anything like the best team in Serie A, right? Like he's playing in a team that's built around him, but that's your finish fifth. And I, but then the problem that you've got is you've got that player in, in the domestic league. And then you've got a player who twice was the one who Italy just needed to score a goal in a World Cup qualifying playoff. So it was against Sweden and it was against North Macedonia. We're not talking again about Sweden are a much, much bigger footballing nation than North Macedonia, but we're still not talking about Germany or 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 even England. We're talking about teams that you think we can get a goal against this somewhere and, and neither time was he able to to deliver for them. And I think there was sort of a lot of talk even after this round of Nations League games for Italy that in Mancini's tenure, Barella who scored this great goal is the joint highest scorer because Immobile and Bilotti, despite endless chances up front, have just never scored regularly for the national team. And I think as long as that's the case, which is probably always going to be the case now, there's going to be this sort of, um, I don't know, this this question hanging over Immobile of why he can do it for Lazio, but he can't do it for the, for on a different stage than that, I guess. Um, Jim says, are you going to have a screen showing your adopted homeland against Peru <laughs> during the live show in Leeds on Monday? Uh, yeah, the final World Cup place will be between Australia and Peru after Australia beat uh, the UAE 2-1. Decent volley from uh, Eintracht Frankfurt's Aidan Hrustich uh, late on uh, gave Australia the victory. So well done to the Socceroos. Um, and uh, no is the answer to that question, I don't think. But we'll keep you updated on the score. Uh, if, if you are thinking, I'm not going to come because I, I won't know what's happening in that game, we will keep you posted. Uh, that'll do for part two. Uh, in part three, we'll, we'll begin with two interesting questions for Nedham. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, we're recording a special episode of Football Weekly featuring experiences from our LGBTQ plus listeners. Um, if you are one of those, we want to hear about your experiences at games, watching in pubs, traveling to and from matches, playing the game. Uh, they can be negative, positive. They might have changed over the years. Just basically your honest experience of, of football. Um, uh, we're going to release it. Um, during June, which is the month of Pride, there'll be a link in the description of this episode on the Guardian website. I'll tweet the link out as well. Um, Stephen says, I'd be interested to hear how transfers work from uh, Nadem, from the, the player's side of things. Um, you know, we're in this period now where there's sort of constant rumours. We don't know if they're true or they're nonsense. But how is a how's a player generally feeling at this stage? I think that, that's a good question, but it's, it brings quite a long answer because like to start, to start with it, it depends. It depends on the nature of the player and the situation. Like, have you had a good season? Have you had a bad season? Um, have someone said that teams are interested in you? Are you looking to go somewhere, but there's no interest? Like you go away for the summer and you like the nicest feeling is when you've played well and you don't want to go anywhere. So you just enjoy the summer and then get ready for the next season. But for other people, you don't necessarily get that sort of feel. And when the season's wrapped up, you know, the club are going to be having conversations with your agent, with you to a certain extent to say what they think the future plans are for you. So from a transfer standpoint, if you really desire the chance to leave, 
then your agent's speaking to tons of different people. Um, but then it's like, does a club want you to leave? If the answer is yes, then the agent's really getting busy. But it doesn't mean that it's going to happen because one thing about transfers overall is that when you want to leave, the sort of the length of time it takes for it to happen is far longer than you want. And you find then the personalities of the players really dictate how stressful this period is because there's some who I know who would call their agent twice, three times a day. Has anything happened? Has anything happened? Has anything happened? And the answer is no, 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 because that's not the way that this process will pan out. But then for other people who sort of trust in it, believe in it, they know you've got till the end of September, end of, sorry, end of August. So with that, you just carry on about your business and you deal with it. But it can be very, can be very stressful. And then the negative side of it is when you don't want to leave and your club say you have to leave. So now you're kind of looking for clubs, but they're not really wanting to look for clubs. One thing I always sort of think when we think about footballers and we don't think about, you know, footballers are human beings too. Allegedly. That idea that you could be, you know, you could be playing for Plymouth and then, you know, you just get called into the office and go, we've sold you to Rotherham. And you sort of think, well, yeah. I've, got a, I've got a move and yeah. my kids are there and my family's there. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever sort of ever gone, oh, you're going there? Kind of, but not to the same extent as that. Because obviously as well, the transfer experience is, is so different depending on where you are in the football pyramid as well. Sure, of course. But the thing you described, that's more so how transfers happen in the USA, because they'll say we've traded you to place X and you have to go. But whereas with football, if they agree fee, you have to go and speak with them to negotiate contracts. And that's when, if you remember back in the day with like a championship manager, you could just request or whatever, like a billion pounds a week or something. And it could be like, well, we can't afford that. So unfortunately, the deal's going to have to fall through. You know, there's that sort of thing. But ultimately, yeah. as, a, as a pro, as a person, a human being, like, if a club say they've accepted a bid and they say they don't want you, it takes a certain type of mindset to say that doesn't matter, I'm just going to stay because you realise that change is there. And if you want to actually do your job and play football, if the opportunity is not going to be at the, there at the club that you're at, then you have to take these conversations seriously. And I found that my first transfer properly was to QPR. And I remember I got a call saying that they've received, the city received the bid and they've accepted it. And I was like, so what? And he says, yeah, well, you've got to get down to London to speak to them tomorrow. I was like, what tomorrow? I thought, what? What's what's going on here? Then before you know it, I'm on the train. Two days later, I'm, I'm playing for QPR, and everything's changed. So it's a it's a weird feeling, and I think I've realised in time why certain people say. I think it's Bobby Zamora. He never really played that far outside the M25, and that's because he had his house where he had his house, had his kids in schools that they were at. So you think about football through more of a vision. How does this work for me for my quality of life and what I'm living off the field? as opposed to as a youngster where it says, oh, I'll just go and play anywhere because I just want to win games, win trophies and all that stuff. I'm curious about that side of it because sometimes when footballers make big moves um, to different countries, yeah, and especially, you know, for instance, I think when players go to Major League Soccer, there's this sometimes dismissive yeah. conversation. We get fans and, and journalists will be like, oh, they're sort of heading off there just to take the money. And it's been sort of prominent in my mind recently because Lorenzo Insigne, who has left Napoli, has gone to Toronto. People mm. going, oh, he's, why isn't he staying to play longer in, in Europe? And yeah. I, I'm curious with that sort of move, and you obviously made the move to America as well. Like how much of it do you think is just about money and how much of it is things you just talked about, like lifestyle, wanting to experience things? I think, I think it depends on the person. I think for someone like Insigne, like they're essentially going to throw every bit of money available to him to try and bring him over, but they're not bringing him over to play in a place where there's nothing going on. So he probably wants to experience the lifestyle as well. And I think as players, sometimes when you are in a particular league, you can drink the Kool-Aid and believe that this is the only important league to stay in in the world. This is all. This is where football exists and everything else is false. But for myself and lots of others, you want to go and experience things. And for the two and a half years I spent in the US, 
when it was all said and done, myself, my wife, my kids, as we look back at that time, I can talk about it in the concept of more than just like another 46, 92, whatever games in a season, because they're good. But here's a different experience. And you you see things when something's new, your eyes are wider. You know, you're taking everything in as opposed to like, we've got another season. We're going to hope to do well. We'll do the same things over and over. So I think for Insigne and lots of other people that go over there, like a lot of people don't know this, but the MLS salaries get published. So if anyone's ever curious, if somebody went over there for money, you can just search online and make the decision yourself as to whether they went over for money. Because I think with all due respect, like I think Shakiri is like the highest paid player in the MLS. So maybe that's why he went over there. But then for other people, the money's not the same because it's a salary cap league and only certain amount of people can make certain amounts of money. But you can go over, experience a new city, a new country. And this is all around the place. And football is more, for a lot of people, it's more than just the pay because at the end of the day, the pay is good but doesn't necessarily always bring happiness when you bring other things into it, like family, like quality of life and the like, because some people want to wake up, say for example, in California, and know it's going to be 20 degrees basically for 300 days a year and just walk out onto a beach and enjoy yourself. And what's the harm in that? In dressing rooms towards the end of the season, is everyone talking about where they're going to be next year? Or is it kind of unsaid and never said? And also a follow-up question is, if you leave a club, do you leave the WhatsApp? Do you just do you get thrown out of the WhatsApp group or do you just like passively aggressively leave the WhatsApp group? I'll, I'll start with the WhatsApp group thing. Cause that's pretty funny actually. So uh, I've been in a couple of WhatsApp groups and interestingly, well, there was one place where I left and they kicked me out the second after I left. <laughs> but then there was another place where I was so well respected that like they, they weren't going to kick me out. They wanted me to leave on my own terms whenever I was ready. And that's the thing about football. Like, especially in England, the season finishes in May, but you're not really, you've not really left till July. So there's a bit of a period there where you're still kind of involved with the football club as such. So it's like, when do you pull the trigger and just say, I'm not interested in this anymore? Or will they create like a side group? But um, to then go to the other question, it's very difficult to say where you're going because ultimately you can never guarantee it. And one thing about transfers, even with people that you know, love, trust and so on, like nobody will say, this is where I'm going until they're actually on the way there. Because they don't, they, you know, they're very superstitious within football and stuff like that. So I think come the end of the season, as you can see from the outside, you know who's doing well at a club and who's not doing well. You know who's probably going to be, who's been disappointed because they're not, they've played 10 games as opposed to the person who's played 40. They know who the player of the season is, the person who maybe wants to aspire to be somewhere bigger, somewhere greater, somebody who's itching for a new contract. And the person that knows they're just not going to play. So you don't necessarily ask them like, where you're going or say where you're going and the like, but you get a feeling of who is really going to be coming back the next year. Cause for some, like for half a season, they'll be miserable, you know, cause it's, it's a 25 person squad, 11 people play every week. Like there's a lot of misery that exists within football that goes beyond just the money side of things itself. So you, you get a feel for who's doing what and, and at what time, but you just wait and see. Cause ultimately the transfer window doesn't close when the next season starts, you know, it closes like after preseason, after you play two rounds of games. Apparently Gareth Bale, uh, Cardiff City are, are like really sort of not confident necessarily, but are really trying to get Gareth Bale. Uh, their chairman, Mehmet Dalman has flown in to the UK to lead the negotiations. Uh, 600 grand a week is what Bale was on, uh, which is more than the weekly wage of Cardiff's first team squad. He was born in Cardiff, has never played football in Wales. Is that the perfect I mean, Ellis was sort of stressed about that idea and probably wanted him to go to, I mean, he's a Swansea fan, of course, but like MLS sounds nicer just to play sort of half an hour a week. What's what's the most romantic, uh, what's the most romantic and perfect situation for Bale, do you reckon, Johnny? Interestingly, you know, 
if if you if you look at Bale's moves over the years, they are exactly the moves that that a nine year old child would make. <laughs> like, so so you know you go to so you're, you're at Southampton, you go to London, and then and then oh Real Madrid comes in. Yeah, I'm going to play for Real Madrid for. 10 years and then I'm going to go back I'm going to go back to my old club and then I'm just going to go back to Cardiff because that's where I live um, and and I think that there's just something there's something really um, like appealing and romantic and uh, about that you know I, I really liked Karen Trippier going to Newcastle just because you know leaving Atletico Madrid the champions of Spain going and going to Newcastle for a relegation battle just because you know he likes the north and, and his family were there um, I think you know we kind of touched on this earlier right that there are there are are reasons to make a move that are, I guess, nothing to do with, you know, ambition, wanting to test yourself at the highest level, or whatever. People people move places for all sorts of different reasons, and I think there are, there are times when we want footballers to be as ruthlessly ambitious for themselves as we are for them. And you know, if Bale has, has, has nothing left to prove, um, you know, like Ellis was saying yesterday, we still don't really know what he what he wants out of life, and and if if he wants to go back to Cardiff and, and you know see some friends and just just stay you know keep keep his fitness ticking over until the world cup you know fair play to it it would be a, a, like a great coup for the championship as well so I, I really hope that happens alex said look one for Nenham, how much do players actually switch off in a season how do they keep exercising keeping fit um and how much communication is there with the club etc i i said that because you know that rashford to spurs room which i agree i don't think will happen but I, I saw him posting a video of him you know doing some picking up some dumbbells or something. It's a very strange thing to put out on video, isn't it? So look, surely we know footballers are quite fit, right? Like we get that. Do we need to know? Like if I I, I don't see Lewandowski doing a bench press, then I think he's just decided to eat kebabs all summer. Now, Max, you say that, but historically, all you ever used to see footballers do was just be on the field from three o'clock on a Saturday. But now you know that they're all like, they're doing this, they're in this place, they're working out, they're traveling around. See, it's clever. They're playing the game. But that's like me just doing a Instagram post of just doing some talking into a microphone that isn't actually a podcast. It's just some practice talking. Well, maybe, maybe. But one thing that changed anyway across the years, so I started in 2004 and we talk about eras and stuff. Like I'm one of the people, my generation, whereby the people I played with are now 50 to 60 years of age, but then also like 18 to 22, 23. So that's like a real significant window of time. And back in the day, for pre-seasons, people would have at least two, three weeks off, go on light jogs, come back, and then use pre-season to get fit. By the time I was finishing pre-season, there was like a pre-pre-season. The season would finish, you'd have a week off, and then you're working straight away. So the initial fitness levels when you came back for pre-season were insane. Like The whole joke used to be, you know, you do a yo-yo test or a beep test first day of preseason. Goalkeepers go out first, and then from there, other people are allowed to leave. There were times goalkeepers were like mid-table. Now it's disgusting. Like everyone's running looking for the goalie, and the goalie's like, "No, nah, I feel great. I'm going to keep doing this." I'm like, "What's happened to the world?" Like fitness has changed. People are investing themselves a lot more, and they understand it's very, very competitive. So like, they don't really have time off like that because, as well, say even when I was at QPR, which is not exactly sports science wise, not the most cutting edge place in all of world football. There were times where they said, this is your body fat at the end of the season. You're not allowed to go up more than 1% between now and six weeks time. And we know what your body weight is. So with that, like, can you really have time off? The key then is to get really fat just at the end of the season. And so you don't think you're getting punished <laughs> if you're getting really fat by the end of the season. You, you literally can't win. But it, when you think about it, like during the season, you're training four times a week, playing two games maybe. 
And now for six weeks, you've not got that, but you're not allowed to put on more than 1% body fat at a point where you have to be below 10 anyway. Like you can't, you have to stay fit. God, I know, it's tragedy, isn't it? If you're not covering the ground on the field, you know, if you're if you're puffing at 80 minutes, that, 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 then fair enough. But like, if, if you're doing it on the pitch, you know, if you, that, that, that's surely where it counts, right? Hey, Rather listen, than, you know, skin folds. And- I'm on your, I'm on, and I'm on your side. And the thing is, it goes deeper than skin folds because we do, uh, we do a DEXA. So it's like a full body scan. So there's no escaping it. You can't just like maybe pay off the sports scientists and be like, just clip this just a little bit less. No, no, you lay down. The thing comes over you and then you just wait as the numbers come out and you're just like, ah, please be okay. Please so be okay. So what you need, what you need is a kind of football-wide sort of ruling, right? Where everyone comes <laughs> yeah. together and says, you're not allowed to be under 10%. It's got to be between 10 and 20. So then every football, so then it, it, it's it's totally evened out hey, across everybody. Think, think of it this way. Like, I, I don't mind what you're saying, but one of the two most significant footballers that's still playing now is Cristiano Ronaldo. And do you think he's above 10% body fat? So everyone will point to him and say, yeah, but Cristiano. No, no, but he would have to go above 10. I was saying in my new rules, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good everybody luck would that. have to be at least 10. Yeah, that's, that's the way to fix it. Then he can't play. Yeah, if Cristiano, we'll, fi- we'll, we'll help you, Cristiano. What we need to yeah. do, we need you to start eating more and working yeah. out less, and then you'll, be, you'll make it one day. That's just a recipe for eating disorders. Especially, I mean, especially in the women's game, like you know, there's 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 huge there's a huge problem with eating disorders and, and kind of body image issues and and. I don't think it's I don't think it's to the same extent within the women's game overall, but within the men's game, it's like a big big thing. And I've seen people not be allowed to train with the team because they're like above, they're like ten point one percent, and the threshold is ten. You know, there's stuff like that. It's it's wild. The sacrifices that they all make for us to just sit and watch it on the telly and go, oh, come on, it's June. I'm a bit bored of football. Um, uh, anyway, look, that'll do for today. I'll finish with this email from Cameron. It says, hi, Max, Barry and team. Huge fan of the pod. Got me back into football following uh, the Euros in 2020. My really good friends, Joe and Amanda, are moving to Sydney next week. We've been friends for over 12 years, although I'm excited for them and their new adventure. I'm also sad they'll be moving so far away. The feeling of their moving date getting closer and closer reminds me of the 2010 Premier League season when Portsmouth, I'm possibly their only South African fan, got relegated as I feel powerless to stop it happening. Um, uh, the uh, the reason I, for the email is Joe is a massive fan of the show. We were gutted that we can't go to a live show together due to him moving over. I drunkenly promised him that I would email the show every week until Max agrees to let Joe buy him a beer in Sydney as he's going there knowing absolutely nobody. I promise you will like him, Max. He is the kind of guy who has an Instagram account dedicated to taking photos of his chin. Keep up the good work. I look forward to hearing about the bromance between Joe and Max. I have so far categorically been very appreciative of people in Australia asking if I want to go for a beer, but taking up no offers on the account that 0.1% may be psychopaths. So like, I'm not, if Joe bumps into me and it's highly possible, we will of course go for a beer. Um, I think that, but you know, I'm just, I just nervous about online. It just feels like sort of online relationships. I think is that is that too harsh? What should I do, Nikki? You're a nice person. <laughs> Why am I being asked? What about this? what about a pint? I thought about doing this on a cameo. Where I was saying like, I'll meet you for a pint in silence. Where, you know, four pounds. <laughs> I'll meet you for a pint. We'll sit opposite just each other. Go for a beer. Just go for a beer All with right, a guy. It's not a even. A, it's not even a full pint in Australia. It's like no, four hundred and eighty. That's true. Okay, I'll go for a beer. It's uh, it's agreed. Um, so yeah, I look forward to it. I'm in the UK at the moment, but you know when I get back, and I live in Melbourne as well, and it's tricky in Sydney because I have to get up at three in the morning to do the work. I have to be a mid afternoon one, uh, Joe. Um, but I'll see you in August. Um, but that's it for the time being. Thank you, Nedim. Thank you very much. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks. 
Thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Football Weekly was produced by Sammy James with Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian. 